The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This morning, we're going to be continuing our look at the book of Galatians. You can turn to Galatians chapter 2. Here we're going to talk about a subject that it's actually very dear to my heart, having grown up in Vallejo, a city that is very diverse, having friends of many different ethnicities, uh, many different races, and uh, desiring that us as a church, that we would have racial reconciliation because of the, the truth of the gospel. That if we walk in line with the gospel, as uh, verse 14 says, one of the implications of this is that we would have racial or, or perhaps a better, more biblical term is ethnic reconciliation. And, and just looking around at our country, uh, obviously we know our history. We know that America has this horrible history of slavery and it is a uh, blight uh, black eye on our history, especially as Christians who argued using Scripture to defend um, the enslavement of those who are made in the image of God. And even when slavery was abolished, we still had segregation in this country. And the civil rights movement, some of you were alive. I was not alive when Martin Luther King marched or when he was killed. Um, I was born a decade later, but the impact of that There was hope that things were going to get better. We even have a day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a holiday to celebrate this elimination of segregation. And yet we look around in the news and we see these shootings and we see uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and we see the amount of uh, anger and, and racism that is still alive and well in our country. And... I desire to see us be light in this area, salt in this area, see the the hope of the gospel truly impact our church in such a way that that we would have both racial diversity in our church and we would have racial reconciliation among one another. And I want to read, before I get too much into my introduction, I want to read this passage to you. It's just a couple verses here in Galatians 2. Paul writes to the Galatian church, and he's, remember in chapter 1, he's defending his, his apostolic credentials. There were some of Judaizers, some of those from Jerusalem that had come up to Galatia and had, been, had infiltrated the church, and they were teaching that, that in order for you to be a really super spiritual Christian, you had to obey the Mosaic law. You had to become Jewish. You had to change in your ethnicity as it were. Paul says, listen, there is no other gospel. The gospel I gave to you, Galatian church, is the only gospel, and it's not man's gospel. It came from God, not man. And my apostolic credentials I received directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, not the guys in Jerusalem, although he says it's important that we agreed. We had unity. And then he goes on in chapter 2, to speak of this incident where Titus was under pressure to be circumcised even though he was a Gentile. And they didn't give into it. And the reason they didn't get into it was because he says in verse 5, give in rather, that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. And so he uses this phrase, the truth of the gospel. He's going to use it again in verse 14. He says this is a gospel issue. This issue of race and, and reconciliation and being one in Christ. And so there's this resolution between the apostles. Yes, the Lord has commissioned you, Paul, to go to the Gentiles. Do it. The Lord has commissioned us to go to the Jews. We're going to do it. We need to remember the poor. And then he says this, verse 11, and this is where we're picking up. When Cephas, that's Peter. uh, By the way, Cephas is just Peter's Aramaic name. It, It means Peter in Aramaic. And so sometimes you'll see Petros or Peter, which means little rock. And you remember Jesus gave him that name, little rock. So his, his first name that he was given when he was born was Simon. And then he was given the name Peter or little rock. Jesus gave it to him. Now, Paul, in speaking about Peter, calls him Cephas or Cephas. 
It's the Aramaic word for little rock. So that's all that's going on here. So when you see the word Cephas, it's the same word in a different language for Peter. And so he says, when, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And we're going to stop right there. Next week we're going to get into the, the justification by faith alone as the foundation of this reality. But here he brings up this important issue. The key phrase is verse 14 where he says, Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel governs both our beliefs and our actions. The gospel is the way we're converted, and the gospel is the way we grow and are sanctified. And there are some beliefs that contradict the gospel. And there are some actions that contradict the gospel. And here in this verse, Peter's actions contradicted the truth of the gospel. Timothy George, in his commentary on Galatians, he writes this, and I wanted to, to read this to you. This is a summary of what's been going on, and I, I think he, he, he summarizes it really well. He says, Paul's argument could be summarized this way. And this is in chapter 1 leading into chapter 2 of Galatians. After God called me to be an apostle, I did not even go to Jerusalem for several years. And when I finally did get there, it was only for a brief get acquainted visit with Peter. Although I also bumped into James, who was present as well. After this, my preaching ministry took me far to the north to Syria and Cilicia. And during this time, the Christians in Judea only received hearsay reports about my work. Although they praised the Lord for what he was doing through me, it was well over a dozen years later when I went to Jerusalem again. This time to talk with the leaders there about how we can collaborate most effectively in the work of world evangelization. And James, Peter, and John stood shoulder to shoulder with me against some false brothers who intruded into our meeting and tried to force my young friend Titus, a Gentile convert, to be circumcised. Of course, I didn't budge an inch on this crucial issue. And when the dust had cleared, the pillar apostles and I sealed our agreement with a cordial embrace. Given this outcome, you can imagine how disappointed I was when Peter came to Antioch and engaged in a kind of behavior that I knew belied his own convictions. Not even Peter, as great as he is, could resist the pressure to back away from his earlier commitment to Christian liberty. So I had to oppose him publicly because in this case, no less than during my second visit to Jerusalem, the truth of the gospel was at stake. I think that's a really good summary of what was going on. The Jews of Jesus' day had a problem with racism and ethnocentricity. In fact, that might be the better way of saying it. Us and them, Jew and Gentile. There is us who are Jews and there's the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is less than dogs. In fact, you know, the term race, I wish it didn't exist because of the doctrine of the image of God. You realize we all come from Adam and Eve. We're all made in the image of God. And so this issue of race, it is so embedded in our culture and, and the word is embedded in our culture and, and studies and so we have to use it. But, but unfortunately, the term race so often means skin color or physical appearance. The biblical term that's often used is the word ethnos, ethnic, where we get the word nations. In fact, in Acts 17, 26, Paul, in fact, turn over there. I want you to see this. Acts 17, verse 26. So he's sitting in the middle of one of the greatest cities in the ancient world, Athens. And he's on Mars Hill. And he's disputing about why the God of the Old Testament, the Jewish God, Yahweh, is the only true and living God. And he says in verse 26 in passing, actually begin in verse 24. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now he's standing on Mars Hill and there's temples everywhere. And he's saying he doesn't live in those things. Then he goes on to say, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. All your gods, you have to serve them. You got to prop up those statues. They fall down once in a while. You got to fix them. They crack. And, and this is the verse I want you to see. He made from one man, that's Adam, every ethnos, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from any of us. The Judaizers that had gone into Galatia could not imagine that God would accept Gentiles as they were. Instead, they were teaching that Gentiles had to become and act like Jews. They had to embrace the Jewish culture and ethnicity and even be circumcised. You see, racism or ethnocentricity, it is not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. It's a sin that must be confronted just like any other sin. Racism violates the integrity and truth of the gospel. Now, on the, in contrast, the cross brings healing and unity. And the cross brings Christ-exalting racial diversity and spirit-enabled racial reconciliation. We're going to see this in Revelation 5. What does it say? Every nation, every ethnos... Every tribe, every people, every tongue will be gathered around the throne singing that song we sang this morning. And we're one in Christ. And God loves diversity. It says in Acts 17, 26, he's the one who made the different ethnicities. And he's the one who sovereignly determined their places and their dwellings and their times. We don't have any Hittites around anymore. He sovereignly determined that. And the reason I say spirit-enabled racial reconciliation is because there's a difference between racial diversity and racial reconciliation, isn't there? We could be very diverse. We could have all different races in this room, but we might not get along. This happens in the job environment. There could be lots of different diversity, diverse races, but there could be hatred and enmity. Only Union with Christ and the power of the Spirit can bring about true reconciliation. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're reconciled to God through Christ first, and the fruit of that is we're reconciled to one another. And this is a glorious thing. This should be what we're marked by. I strongly desire and want to promote and live for ethnic racial reconciliation, both in our church and our community. And I want it to be Christ-exalting. We don't do it to be hip and cool with the culture. We do it because it's in the line with the truth of the gospel. In fact, turn over to Galatians 5. I know my intro is a little long, but turn back to Galatians, over to Galatians 5. I want you to see this connection between spirit-empowered reconciliation and fleshly racism. Galatians chapter 5, he says, start in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like of these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what some of those things are. In the context of broken relationships, enmities, selfishness, jealousy, anger, hatred, rivalry, divisions, factions, envies. If that doesn't sound like racism, I don't know what does. 
where I am in my relationship with another human being, I am filled with the flesh and I'm full of all of these evils. And Paul said, don't be deceived. Those who do practice, those who have a lifestyle of practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not may not. Not might fly in under the radar. Will not. Period. End of sentence. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What can change someone like the Apostle Paul, who was the Jew of Jews, who basically was the most ethnocentric type of Jew there was in his day? The last thing on his mind was probably to go to the Gentiles. And what could change him to where he had a love for them, where he had a love for the Gentile churches such that he lost sleep over them. He was in labor for them until Christ was formed in them, he says. He says to the Thessalonians, I, like a motherly, I tenderly wrapped you close and I wanted to nourish and cherish you. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But the wonderful news is this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And against such things there is no law. So Paul is teaching throughout Galatians that vertical reconciliation between God and man through Christ will bear the fruit of horizontal reconciliation between Man and woman, brother and sister, mother and father, different races, different languages, different cultures. And importantly, in the context of chapter 2, he's saying freedom in Christ means nothing more is required than belief in Christ. In fact, turn back to Galatians 3, two chapters back, verses 26 to 28. Now he's writing to the Galatian church. So these are the Gentiles, not the Jewish people. And he says to them, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, you are a child of God. You are an inheritor of the kingdom. And guess what? It's through faith. You don't have to become Jewish. It's by faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. And guess what? There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Jarvis Williams, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, he's written a book, One New Man, talking about racial reconciliation. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. He talks about distinction but not status. What does he mean by that? There are still social distinctions even when Paul's writing. He mentions them here in this verse. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female. Those distinctions remained in the church in the first century. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be able to write about those groups and people understand what they were there in Galatians 3. It would not have had a rhetorical effect. But instead, here's what he says. Galatians 3, 28. There is distinction, but there's not a status. There's no upper echelon of Christianity. There's not the haves and the have-nots, the superior and the inferior. Here's what he says. Galatians 3.28 does not support colorblind Christianity. Instead, it promises that regardless of what our social, ethnic, or racial identities are, if we are Christians, we're incorporated into the family. Within the family of God, we will inherit the kingdom of God and we become part of the church of God. In Christ Jesus, our natural social identities are transformed by the Spirit and do not serve as the basis of our standing within God's family. And they should not stand as the basis of division within the body of Christ because the one God who unites us, Father, Son, and Spirit, is greater than our greatest social and racial distinctions. Amen to that. There's another part. Christians... Don't be colorblind, but be transformed in Christ and pursue unity in Christ, both with those who are like you and those who are distinct from you. If you affirm Christian colorblindness, you will fail to live in the light of Galatians 3.28 that you are actually all one in Christ. This is what we heard in Ephesians 2. The dividing wall of partition has been broken down in Christ. And those of us who were far off have been brought near. 
And those of us who are white might think somehow because of the American history that that somehow we have a first rank in the kingdom. But guess what? We were the Gentiles who were far off without hope and without God in this world. But in Christ, we've been brought near. Praise the Lord. You see, that's what Paul argues in this book. There's no one righteous. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Today we would say, neither black nor white. Neither Asian nor African. None of us will be justified by our ethnicity. We're only justified by faith in Christ. So the conference in chapter 2. Now we're going to, let's get into chapter 2. I'm... Done with my introduction. Verses 1 to 10, we talked about this uh, two weeks ago, that this conference that Paul had with with Peter and James down in Jerusalem was the visit of Acts 11, and that they were dealing with famine relief. and, And the Gentile churches, the Gentiles were bringing famine relief to the Jewish churches. What irony. I think it's why Paul brought it up. These Judaizers, in some way, thought they were superior to the Gentiles. And yet it's the Gentiles who show the love of Christ and give out of their poverty to the church in Jerusalem so that the church at Jerusalem would have relief in the famine. What a glorious thing. And then after that, Peter comes up to Antioch. And this incident in verses 11 to 14 doesn't happen up in Galatia. That's uh, modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. It happened down in Antioch, which was home base for Paul. So Peter comes up there. This confrontation happens, and it leads to the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where the purpose was to solve this social problem of Jews and Gentiles. And James's conclusion in Acts 15, he says, we, the Jews, will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles. And I don't think it's an accident. He doesn't say they'll be saved like us. That would be the ethnocentric racist way of saying it. Instead, with spirit-given humility, he says, guess what? We're saved the same way they are. So what is Peter's error? Here in verses 11 to 13, we see Peter's error. It's conduct not in step with the gospel. Now, this is not a a salvation issue. Peter didn't lose his salvation. Peter, he actually had freedom. In verse 11, look what he says there. He says, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. Well, why? Well, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter had experienced in Acts chapter 10, with the issue, remember the incident with Cornelius, Peter's praying, and, and the sheet comes down, and there's all of this, you know, ribs and pork chops and all of this food that was unclean to Jewish dietary laws. And God tells him, you need to arise and eat. And Peter's like, no, Lord, I've been a Jew, I've been a devout Jew from my birth, and I can't eat that stuff. And he says, what I call clean, don't call unclean. And then he sends him to Cornelius' house to go have that ham sandwich. <laughs> to put feet on his faith. Are you going to obey what God said? And you remember what happened. Salvation comes to that house and Peter rejoices and he understands the implications of the gospel for the Gentiles. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So he had this freedom. He saw it. He realized it. And guess what? Then he gave in to fear. But before these guys came, it says he was... Breaking bread and having fellowship and eating. This is a picture in verse 12 of Peter enjoying table fellowship. I assume it included the Lord's table with the Gentile members at the church in Antioch. And and the way it speaks of it, the language in the Greek is that this was his habit. He was just living life with the freedom he had in Christ to have these relationships. He's in fact living out the gospel implications that God taught him in Acts 10 and 11. In fact, Acts 10, 28 says, God has shown me I should not call any person common. And the word is koinos. It's like this idea of really lesser, inferior, profane even sometimes. But he says, I shouldn't call anybody common or unclean. 
I should not look down on anyone anymore. And guess how God taught it to him? He went and had a meal with a Gentile. I think that betrays our inner heart, doesn't it? We can say we, we, we're not racist or, or, or we're not prejudiced, but would you break bread? Would you have a meal? Open up your home. Put feet to your words. See, this is what, what was going on. Peter, he's putting feet to his words. He's living out the gospel implications. In fact, he's living out what Jesus modeled, isn't he? Jesus modeled this to Peter. Luke chapter 15, verse 2, he was accused by his opponents. This man eats with sinners and tax collectors. All he did was come eating and drinking. He's a glutton and a drunkard. That was the accusation against Jesus. I bet he was really fun to hang out with. But what did Jesus also do? He ministered to Samaritans who were the, the, if a Jew and a Gentile got married, no, it's not, is it? It's, uh, the Samaritans were the people who had, um, Jewish people who had married Gentiles' neighbors and then they had their own uh, country, Samaria, there. And when Jesus had crossed over into Samaria in John 4, he meets that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he brings salvation to her, doesn't he? And when he tells a parable of who is my neighbor, when he answers that question of who is my neighbor, what parable does he tell? Parable of the good Samaritan. And he ministered to the Roman centurion, a Gentile in Matthew 8, and the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile from Syria, modern-day Syria, Phoenicia, old Phoenicia, in Matthew 15. He modeled this. And you know what he basically was saying is my coming puts an end to ethnocentricity. You see, the Jews had a God-ordained ethnocentricity, didn't they? It was part of their religious makeup. If you wanted to know the true and living God, you had to become Jewish. And Jesus said, my coming puts an end to that. It puts an end to it. In fact, what were his last orders to us? Go out and make disciples of all the nations. Well, certain men come in verse 12 from James. There's lots of discussion whether James approved them or not. I assume James didn't approve them. I assume that they were associated with James because he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So it was shorthand for them saying, some guys came up from Jerusalem. Because we see what James's position is in Acts 15. But they come up and what Peter does, it says he drew back and separated himself. He drew back and separated himself. He fell back into his old ways. And it says it was because of fear, verse 12. Do you see that? Fearing them. And so the rest of the Jews, the Jewish Christians that were Jews by birth in Antioch, followed him. They followed the example of Peter, of course. He's one of the apostles. And that's why Paul had to confront him to his face. Paul understood the biblical principle of speaking to someone privately. He's going to say it in Galatians. If you see your brother in a sin, you with humility go and approach them lest you too be tempted. Why did he have to confront Peter to his face? Because there were Jewish Christians and even Barnabas who were led astray by his error. And the gospel was at stake. It wasn't what they were eating, it was who they were eating with. That was the issue to the Judaizers. You couldn't eat with Gentiles. You couldn't break bread with them because they were inferior. And so he says, Peter's action, verse 12, it was hypocritical. It was play acting. In fact, we get our word hypocrite from that, hypocrisis. And that word hypocrinomai, it was used in the classical Greek. It was used of those who acted on the stage. The famous Greek plays, an actor was a hypocrite because they put a mask on and they acted. They play acted. And he said, that's what Peter was doing. He knew what the gospel taught. He had freedom to break bread with his Gentile brothers and sisters. But when these men came up, fearing their reaction, he pulls away and withdraws and falls back in. And even Barnabas, verse 12, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas joins this charade. And you know what Paul is saying in this? 
by using the word hypocrisy, he's saying they should have known better. Both Peter and Barnabas should have known better. Must have been a blow. The last man Paul would have expected was Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who brought him to Antioch in the first place. The one who went with him on his first missionary journey to Galatia to plant those churches. The churches in Galatia would know Barnabas intimately. And even he was led astray and gave in to the fear And what was so hurtful and damaging was the fact that they were acting as if their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters were still sinners while they, because of their ritual purity and obedience to the law, stood in a more favorable relationship to God. There was like a two-tier Christianity. So why does Paul mention this here? Because this happened in Antioch, not in Galatia. Why would Paul mention it? I think the reason he mentions it is not only because they knew better, but that the Galatian believers were guilty of the exact same thing. In fact, turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who's bewitched you? Who's... Have you lost your mind, is what he's saying. You've been bewitched! It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this, Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Remember what he said about the flesh in chapter 5. It leads to rivalries and dissensions and hatred and envy and slander. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? Basically tells them, you're acting just like Peter and Barnabas. By creating this division in the Galatian church between those who are receiving the Judaizer teaching that you have to obey the Jewish ethnic religious rites found in the law, circumcision, Washing of hands, ritual purities, honoring Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, whatever it was, by doing that, you're creating division, you're creating strife, and it is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Well, what is the antidote? The antidote is to not fear man, it's to fear the Lord God, to have freedom in Christ. In fact, turn over to Philippians Look at what Paul says to the church at Philippi. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. The antidote to fear is the gospel itself. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come or see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, this this is the antidote to fear, is the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, how is that so? You're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And guess what? You're not frightened in anything by your opponents. Notice how the gospel is always in the context of community. American Christianity has been done a great disservice by American individualism. Our culture promotes individualism. It has since the beginning that we could make something of ourselves, that we could pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we could go from being nothing to being something. And we're all Americans. We know this. And in some sense, this does mean a great deal to us. I cherish our freedoms. And I think this is the greatest country on the planet. But here Paul says... The gospel is intended for community. When you are united in mind and united in spirit and you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, you won't be frightened by your opponents. 
But when we're striving side by side, guess what? That means we have to be in relationship with those who are different than us. Because the gospel brings together people that wouldn't normally hang out together. You probably wouldn't want to hang out with me, all of you, apart from Christ. So in Galatians 3, where we just were, Paul traces out this reality that guess what? Another reason racial reconciliation is a fruit of the gospel is because this was God's plan from the beginning. He says in verse 8 that God gave the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And in it was the promise that all the nations would be blessed because of him. And so when Christ came, he's fulfilling the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed, that he would be the servant in Isaiah who's a light to the nations to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. In Hosea, that those who are not his people would become his people. And now Christ has come and he says, go into all the nations making disciples. And Revelation 5 says at the end of the age, every nation and tribe and people and tongue will be represented. And it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And God has designed and purposed it. And Paul argues this. And he says in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 3, that guess what? Nobody deserves this. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, he says. But guess what? Verse 14. Christ became a curse for us, verse 13. So that verse 14, in Christ, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then he goes down the implications in verse 28 and 29 that we already saw. We are all one in Christ. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. This means that the great doctrine of justification by faith alone has implications for racial reconciliation. That if we understand the reality of the gospel and justification by faith alone, it means it has implications in our life. If we have been reconciled to God the Father through the finished work of our Savior, we must be reconciled to one another. It's not an option. It's not sort of a perk in the Christian life for those who feel like it's worth their time. We are all one in Christ. And so Paul's response in verse 14 is, live out of the gospel. Verse 14, back in chapter 2, he says, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So it turns out Peter was not only pulling away from the Gentiles, but he was somehow telling them, hey, if you want to hang out with me, you got to become like me. That's one of the biggest blights, I think, on the modern missions movement in, in my evaluation of church history is that we imported Western Christianity and all that it entails into Africa, for example, without any regard for their culture. That is a superior mindset that is no different than what is right here. you got to become like us if you want to worship the true and living God. What we need to bring to them is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the unity that it brings. We don't need to tell them that our way of how we do our buildings and what we wear and how we do church in its mechanics is the only way to do it. So Christians who choose to be disinterested or apathetic regarding racial reconciliation contradict the gospel. That's the implication. A gospel disinterested in human suffering and apathetic towards injustice is a gospel that cares little or less about unity cares little or less about God's plan to unify all things in Christ. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says our conduct, it needs to be in step with the truth of the gospel. And in verse 14, when he says this, it could mean a couple different things. Your translation might say uh, something different, like walking in line with the truth of the gospel. This word, uh, it's actually where we get our word orthopedic from. It's this idea of um, literally walking straight without a limp. So uh, uh, an, an, orthopedi- an orthopedist is just someone who makes your bones straight. That's all it means. But this idea of walking straight, now if it's metaphorically used, it means this idea of having a right direction to a destination and not getting off track. 
not falling off the side of the road to the wayside, as it were, making a straight line for a destination. Whatever, whatever picture Paul had in mind, whatever picture he had in mind, he either, he's saying that when you don't live in ethnic harmony with one another, you're either walking with a limp and you can't walk to your destination or you've fallen off into a ditch. That's the picture. One of the two. Either way, it's bad news. He said, you need to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the importance of this. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, as you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. In fact, Romans 13 says, walk properly as in the daytime. And so this picture of walking, it's a picture that Paul loves to use. In fact, in, in chapter 5 of Galatians, he says, you were running the race so well, what hindered you? What cut in and threw you into confusion? But I, another area, and I wanted you to turn to Galatians 5 again. I want you to see in verse 16 and verse 25, we, we read this earlier, but he brings up this issue of walking again. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then down in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So he says, one of the implications of the gospel, the Spirit is living inside of you. You have been born again, you have the Spirit resident in you, and He is the Spirit who produces fruit in your life in chapter 5. It's His fruit, and if you keep in step with Him, if you are led by Him, you will not be led into broken relationships, provoking one another, envying one another, verse 25. And why is that? Because you'll be humble and not conceited. You see, racism is rooted in conceit and pride. I am better than you for whatever reason. And the blight on our culture is that we have had slavery in our country from when it was founded. And of course it was abolished. But we have still to this day living with the implications of it. Maybe here in the Bay Area it's not as bad, but every time I've gone back to Louisville, Kentucky for school, It is a topic of discussion every single day I'm there among the pastors. And they feel it keenly because the Southern Baptist denomination promoted slavery, defended it from Scripture. And so the answer is to keep in step with the Spirit. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To walk... In, a, in line with the truth of the reality of the gospel. We've been reconciled to God. How could we not be reconciled to one another? Any religious system or theology that denies this truth stands in opposition to the new creation. In opposition to it. God is bringing into being the body of Christ which is not based upon caste or color or social condition but on grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the gospel has established us, the church, as those we don't involve ourselves in hypocrisy and charades and play acting. By the grace of God, we're faithful to live out the truth of the gospel. And if we have been a hypocrite and involved in charades and play acting, repent of it. There's forgiveness in the gospel, there's reconciliation in Christ. And that word, katalasso, to be reconciled, I know I've used this illustration too many times, but it's that idea of shipbuilders when a joint is fixed together and fits perfectly so it doesn't leak on a ship. It's reconciled. That's what we need to be as the body of Christ is reconciled to one another because we're reconciled to God. Furthermore, faithfulness to this involves more than believing right doctrine. Right doctrine without right behavior always produces hypocrisy. William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist in England, the Lord raised him up 
to end slavery in England. For 20 years, he fought it. Slavery in England was not abolished until three days before his death. He only wrote one book, A Practical View of Christianity. And in it, he argued the only way to morally improve Britain and to eliminate the slave trade was to recover the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what he taught. Why? Because in the gospel, in the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, you realize there's nothing good in us. There's no one superior. And there's no one inferior. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And everything we have is of grace. Everything we have is undeserved. And to God be the glory. Turn over to Revelation 5 in closing. I have alluded to this a number of times. You've seen this so many times. Because Frank mentions this and I mention this. But let's just look at this from the perspective of racial reconciliation. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9, they, that is the, the, the heavenly court, all of heaven, sings a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, talking about the Lord Jesus, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who's there, standing as if slain who's worthy to take the scroll. And they sing out, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That is our inheritance. That's a taste of what heaven's going to be like. We're going to reign on the earth. Now, now in regard to racial reconciliation, I want you to see a couple things. If the purchase of a people, a bride, a church, a kingdom, a priesthood, from every tribe, he says, from every tribe, If this is intentional and designed and purposed by God the Father, and it's not coincidence or human chance, it's not some sort of uh, genetic ancestry that came down to us through evolutionary processes, but if in fact God the Father purposed and designed and planned this from before the foundation of the world, the implications are enormous, aren't they? This is what He desires. This is what the, our Father in heaven wants. And when we pray, our kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we're praying. He says all tribes, and that word tribe there is ethnos. So it was translated nations over in the other passage, Acts 17. It's translated tribes here. All ethnic groups. In fact, John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he goes through all of this. It's wonderful. He basically says, however you want to slice humanity, by tribe, by nation, by people, by tongue, it means all of them. And God chose from all of them. And Christ has purchased by his blood from every nation, tribe, and people, and tongue. What a glorious tapestry it's going to be. A mosaic that's going to be beautiful, far beyond what we could imagine, because this is throughout human history. Second, there is God-centered harmony in this, isn't it? It's everybody out of every ethnic group, and it says they will reign. They're all going to reign. There's not tears of Christianity. There's not going to be slavery. Some reigning and some slaving. Third, they were purchased at an infinite cost in this passage, weren't they? What does he say? By your blood, Jesus, you purchased infinite cost what is every tribe worth to God he set the worth didn't he he said the blood of my son and fourth it is for the father's delight and glory we must never lose sight of this that racial reconciliation isn't ultimately about us it's about God's glory 
It's about his joy, his delight in us. Racial diversity and reconciliation is forever and it glorifies God in Christ forever. We're not going to become one lump mass of humanity without any distinction for eternity. In fact, we're going to have our distinctions for eternity. Galatians 2.20, back in Galatians, says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I would just challenge you, if you are prejudiced and racist in your heart, to repent of it. If we have died to racism and ethnocentricity in Christ, how will, she, how will we still live in it? How? We can't. Because Christ is in us. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us. He loved me, a sinner and a rebel who didn't deserve it. A poor boy from Vallejo. And I don't say that to get a reaction. I know where I came from. And it's like nothing good can come out of Vallejo, right? And, and Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Hallelujah, what a savior. Father, thank you for this word. It may be a hard word to hear for some of my brothers and sisters. But Father, this is the implications of the gospel at stake. This is why Paul was so burdened that he was willing to confront Peter to his face. Because it's not merely about human relationships, it's about your glory and it's about Christ's gospel. And we want to be a light in our community. We want to reflect our community. I pray that our church would be a reflection of the diversity we have in Brentwood and Knightson and Oakley and Antioch and Discovery Bay. And I, I pray that it wouldn't just be diversity, but it would press into true reconciliation by the Spirit. The people would marvel at the love we have for one another and the love we show them in Christ when they come. Do this work in us, Father. I pray we need your help. We can't do it apart from your Spirit. Would you pour out your Spirit upon us? Would he come and work in power and bring revival and renewal and reconciliation to us? In Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.